Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thanks for tuning in. You're here. I'm here. Spring is in the air. And here in Europe, war is drawing near. And as my daughter often says, we're all just trying to grapple with our big feelings. I'm not so sure what to say, and I'm not so convinced this is the place to say it. But the cherry trees are in bloom, the flora and the fauna are popping, and yet there's this dark cloud that seems to be looming over all of us. It's complicated. We're all doing what we can to get by, we're all doing what we can to help. My partner, she's a saint. She's out there at the Berlin Central Station working with the refugees in the children's corner in every free moment she has. And I'd like to think that I'm doing my part as well, but we all have to live with the harsh reality that there's always more work to be done if we're going to live in a just, sustainable, peaceful world. But until or unless that happens, I'm going to keep on trying to carve out little slivers of time to pursue this podcast project, which has in so many ways become my safe space for empathic exploration as we careen from crisis to crisis. This, the seventh season of my beloved podcast, has been exploring the working lives of artists of various mediums. We kicked it off with the Berlin-based contemporary artist and painter Benjamin Rubloff. And for the second episode, we did our first double episode, Staying in Berlin, with the singer, songwriter, producer, and audio engineer Brian Trahan. And then we flew out of Berlin, over the Atlantic, and over the continent to sunny Los Angeles, where we explored the photographic works of the contemporary artist Sonia Nauman. And our last episode brought us back east to the swamp of D.C., where we had yet another double episode with the poet and the professor Joshua Weiner. Were they the four best episodes in this podcast's history? Maybe. I don't see why not. But I'll tell you this, if you haven't been tuning in, you've been missing out. You know who has been tuning in? There's this cat, Joe Ravesloot, who was my student in like 1974 or something. Joe is a grown-ass man and a hell of a good man. And he's supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash for a living. And I'll tell you this, not only is he supporting the podcast He is supporting this podcast at the highest tier. Joe Ravesloot is indeed a living legend, which is why this summer, when I'm making my, dare I say, triumphant return to Chicago, am I excited about it? Yeah, I'm excited about it. Joe and I are going to meet up, and I'm going to take him out for a bite on the north side of Chicago. Dude, Chicago, dining mecca of the universe. Yeah, I said it. Where are we going to go? I'll tell you where we're going to go, because I'm a bit of a romantic. We are going to go to Cookies and Carnitas. Cookies and Carnitas? Yep, Cookies and Carnitas. It's the restaurant owned by Brad Newman, the Jewman, who I had as the first guest 
on this podcast two years ago. So Joe, as far as I'm concerned, you could start licking your lips now because I will meet you on North Broadway Avenue at Brad Newman's joint, Cookies and Carnitas. It's going to be a blast. I can't wait to check in with you. I can't wait to hear what you're up to. And I can't wait to thank you for your patronage of this here podcast. And you too, my dear listener, can be just like Joe Raveslute. Just head on over to patreon.com slash for a living and see what kind of rewards you can get for supporting my project this here for a living podcast. You don't have to take a free ride. Stay with me. It's okay. We can still be besties. But if you dig the thing and you have the means to show some support, show some support. That's all I'm saying. Yo, Joe, can't wait to break bread with you. So Joe's been listening, you've been listening, and we're about to dive into the back half of season seven. And it just so happens that the back half of season seven begins in my apartment building in Kreuzberg in Berlin, Germany. For in my building, there lives a gentleman, a Cornish gentleman indeed, not English, Cornish, these are different things, new knowledge for me. I'm just trying to pretend like I knew it all along. There's a Cornish cat called Scott, Scott Williams. And by day, Scott has a job. It seems rather boring to me, but it also seems to compensate him rather magnificently. And by night, most nights, I imagine, Scott is a DJ. And Scott plays the soul. Scott plays the funk. Scott spins music that will take you around the world and back again. He's got his own thing going on. So I wanted to sit down and talk with him about it. And fortunately, he was totally game to do so. So I brought my gear down three flights of stairs, set it up in Scott's living room, surrounded by thousands of records, and we dove right into it. Now, is this a double episode? Half of the episodes this season have indeed been double episodes. Is this another one of them? Yine, as my German friends say. We're going to sit down. We're going to talk to Scott. We're going to explore his work as a DJ. And then there's going to be a second episode that's dropped at the same time this one has dropped, which is a special set that Scott created just for the For a Living podcast. So we'll learn about Scott, we'll learn about how he approaches his craft, we'll get to listen to him, spin some records in the context of the conversation, and then there will be this whole other episode, which is no talking, just Scott in a multicultural, multilingual, polyrhythmic exploration of soul, funk, and a whole bunch of deep cuts that will soothe your soul and keep you at the edge of your seat. That's kind of what Scott Williams does. Like, it seems to me that his approach as an artist is to lull you into a groove and then pop you right out of it. It's actually quite magnificent what he does. So join Scott and I to explore how he does it. Scott Williams, welcome to For a Living. It's great to be here with you. How do you describe what you do? I am a record digger, curator, and um, occasional DJ. 
and occasional DJ. Now, you were born and raised in Cornwall, which our listeners ought to know is not England. No, it's not England. <laughs> what drew you to this obsession that you have with mostly American, mostly African American sounds? Like, how would you describe this connection that you have to the other side of the Atlantic and to the black experience? Mm. Well, my family always listened to music, which isn't particularly a novel statement. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you. But, but so I remember kind of lying in bed kind of as a kid and hearing James Brown, Stevie Wonder coming up through the floor and the syncopation of the, the drum and the bass, because you couldn't really hear anything else, helped me kind of sleep, I guess. So it was always around and I kind of, the magic of seeing my father put a record on the record player and and kind of, I mean, still to this day, not entirely sure how that actually works. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have about 4,000 records. I don't really know how record players work. So that was always a huge part of my life. And I guess at the age of 10 or 11, my parents divorced. It wasn't fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... And at that time, I'd just gone to comprehensive school, you know, kind of 11, 11 years old. And I met a guy called Steve and Steve had all these tapes. And they were of um, a guy called Tim Westwood, who was on Capital Radio. He was playing hip hop from New York. And I hadn't heard anything like it before in my life. And I think with everything going on at home, I just got drawn into kind of, you know, electro and early New York hip-hop and just lost myself in it. And nothing else really mattered. You know, you you would be at home kind of wondering what's going on at home, but then hearing about a black man struggle in the Bronx or in Harlem with drug dealing and guns. And it was like, it was like a, an original form of communication where someone was just telling me about their problems. And frankly, me kind of going, my problem is not as bad as his. Yeah. Was there something about those stories in particular? Stories of hustlers and thugs yeah. and gangsters that like yeah. kind of did it for you? Yeah, there's always an element of kind of, you know, ice tea, power, NWA. It's, it's a masculine music, right? And, you know, bordering misogyny at times. But so there's an element of that. I remember listening to Bum Rush the Show you know, by Public Enemy and whenever that came out, 87, 88 maybe. And I didn't really know what they looked like. I didn't know what rappers looked like. You know, there was no MTV, but imagining the songs they were talking about and then you're imagining what it looked like. It was it was just a way to escape. And also the music was just incredible, like just genuinely fucking incredible. And then you start hearing things. You know, you'd hear Funky Drummer and you're like, hang on a minute, that's off my dad's James Brown compilation. Right. And you're like, the fuck is going on? Yeah. How, how is how is Clyde Stubblefield playing with yeah, Ice T? Yeah. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, wh- how is that a thing? Because to your point, I'm in Cornwall, right? So, I lived in a village where you just have old people standing outside all day, saying hello to cars because. <laughs> There's fucking nothing going on. So you'd walk around with your Walkman on, listening, looking at cows, being on a beach, whilst Chuck D's telling you about X, Y, or Z, and you could hear a break, and you're like, 
I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And it was it was that curiosity of how has this art come about? How how is it touching me like it is? And also, um, I want more. That was the main thing. Was that I want more of this? What is this? This is this is the thing. I didn't even know I needed it, but this is the thing. Was there something about the bravado, particularly of like West Coast rappers, that appealed to you as you were kind of trying to figure yourself out as a young man in Cornwall, mm. grappling with divorce, mm. maybe being a little bit introspective? Mm. Did their bravado appeal to you? No, I think the best way to describe this, and it's this is half-baked at best, but uh, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, so my, my parents got divorced, and so my father, for maybe six, seven years, just disappeared. And, um, you know, I could talk about that, but he decided to do that. People do stuff. Yeah. And um, so I had an absence of a male, a male figure, and suddenly all these predominantly black dudes were just saying, like, be a man, stand up, stand up for things be who you are, like work yourself out, own your own shit. It gave me a way to understand the world and, and, and kind of navigate through life. And I it, honestly, I, it definitely, as I've got older, I've realized my formative years, my teacher was hip hop. And as I get older, I just get more brazen and more comfortable with the, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and you develop a language around that. Yeah, so yeah, and a way of yeah, and a way of checking it, a way of making sure that, you know, I don't give a fuck means nihilism. I'm, you know, what I mean, like kindness, empathy are still there, but I think it's the sticking it to the man a little bit. This, I mean, broadly, if you look at what's happening in the world today, I'm not sure the the system works. Okay. <laughs> what should make you say that? Well, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of astute. I look on, I read a newspaper, yeah, I look yeah. on the interwebs, shit's kind of fucked up. And I, I can, I just can't relate to it. You know, I'm a white male and there's a bunch of white males doing stuff at the moment. And my, my teacher hip hop would be like, the fuck are you doing? Yeah. So I think that the bravado was there, but I didn't use it to make myself, Yeah. MC Money Drip or whatever, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, can you do me a favor? And despite the ways in which the mystic chords of memory mm. uh, might obfuscate the actual truth, yeah. we're not here to find the actual truth. I was going to say, so f- I'm just making this up. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just looking for your story. So yeah. can you tell the story of how you went from being, let's say, a fan uh, to an artist? Right. So I used to live on the south coast in Cornwall, near, near, near a place called St. Austell. And St. Austell used to have a record shop called Saffron Records. Crazy record shop. Uh, the guy who ran it, I hope he never listens to this because I'm, <laughs> I'm about to talk shit about Kev. But anyone who listens to this, who went to Saffron Records, knows that what I'm about to say is 100% fucking true, right? I'm in. So, so Kev, uh, Kev was amazing. So the side note to this, by the way, anyone who deals in records, sells records and trades records are insane. Okay. There's a thing. Like beyond just an obsession, there's... It's odd. You know, you can go to a record fair and you walk in, you see everyone behind the, behind the counters and stuff selling kind of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of records and they all look 
the same, but you can't put your finger on. Yeah, there's an X factor. We yeah. don't have to. I'd really say it's a W factor. It's a you know W I mean? factor. Yeah, it's slightly less than X, but okay. So anyway, um, I digress. The Cav. The Cav st- started hearing these tapes and then started going to the record shop, and the record basically had cassettes and and vinyl. So I started initially buying some cassettes of like Run DMC, Tougher Than Hell, Fat Boys. 83, 85. Yeah, kind yeah. of the street sound, electro stuff. and I was a big fan of Fat Boys Crushing. Yeah, oh God, I love that tune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that kind of probably went on for about three or four years, really sporadic, buying records, buying, and, and kind of, I remember we had a kind of really shitty kind of turntable at home. And I remember, maybe this is like maybe 1991, Gangstar came out with Jazz Thing. Yeah. Like an amazing record like that that totally changed the game in terms of like oh i've got to dig jazz now i've got to go and find all the jazz breaks <laughs> uh, but on, at the start of it there was just lots of spoken word and so you'd heard scratching but i'd never seen anyone do it i think I'd, yo mtv raps maybe have just started so you, you look at it and you're like i don't fucking understand what they're doing like <laughs> what is that yeah. so and then so that went on and then i kind of left school and I went to kind of sixth form, uh, which is kind of in between kind of comprehensive school and university where you do your A-levels. And, you, you know, you're, you're no longer in a school uniform. You, you study, but you study in jeans and T-shirts and trainers and, and whatever, right? So you can be more of yourself. And I basically met this guy called Francis who was really into hip-hop. And he was also a rapper. And as a side note, he was fucking amazing. He had no idea how good he was. So we started hanging out and then he started kind of saying, I've got some friends who are making records and sampling. And um, why don't you come over and hang out and and meet them and stuff? So I went to this place called Foxhole and I met this guy called Dren, or Adrian, but he was known as Dren. And another guy there called Hugh. And I walked in and it was just records everywhere like thousands of records and straight away I was like oh fuck these guys are like properly serious and at the back there was a a studio and and so I just used to go there and get high and they would put our records and sample them and scratch them and I reckon for at least a year I just sat there going I am just blown away by all this fanboying out totally totally and then another guy called Chris came along and he was probably one of the most talented DJs in the country. And then it all started kind of escalating because then they had some friends in London who were big time record diggers. And I mean like next level stuff. So a guy called Julian Baker and Simon Gilbert who uh, went on to produce albums with Talib Kweli and Most Def. So we're in this little village in like Foxhole, and they would drive down on a Friday and turn up with crates and crates of records. So like two crates of like underground New York hip-hop, a crate of like jazz, soul, and then like two boxes of 45s. And they were like, you can buy any of these. And they would play you stuff, and you're like, what the fuck is this? This is amazing. Like they were, they were bringing down like boxes of library records, no one had ever seen or even thought about sampling and they were sampling that. So I was very lucky 
that I was basically around royalty, like genuine, like, like Simon and Julian are internationally known as like some of the best record diggers on the planet. I mean, they sell records to Cut Chemists and Mad Lib and, you know, Jess Blaze and Kanye West and The Alchemist. So there was some serendipity to it. Like 100%. so many stories, you yeah. just sort of stumbled into yeah. a crew of people in in Cornwall and then in the south of England and mm. then in London. But at some point you pivoted from being a fan of the craft and having maybe, let's say, an academic interest to someone who went out there, you're getting records mm. and you're putting together your own sets. Mm. So can you recall... For me, the first set that you scrapped together, what year was it? How old were you? And what do you remember about it? Fuck, that's a good question. Um, I think it's around about 94. So I'd been collecting, but I hadn't, I had one turntable, didn't have a mixer. And then I bought uh, two 1210s, the same ones that we're looking at now. I've had them for like, you know, however long that is, 30 years. They're, they're just ridiculous bits of kit. They just don't break. Um, so I, met, I I bought myself my first pair of decks, a really shitty mixer, really shitty, like a real thin kind of really bad sound thing, and just did a kind of mixture of hip-hop and then breaks and samples. But the whole, you know, ultimately, like, hip-hop is made out of a tiny slither of a of a tune and then you know in the olden days used to cut them up to make the loop and then sampling took that over you you can basically buy records just for the break right and so you know but you then forget the rest of the record and sometimes it's good to hear a record and then you hear the break like i think every dj does this like who collects what i you know the similar stuff is that a lot of your collection will just be full of breaks. But as you get older, stroke lazier, maybe, you just put on a whole record and, yeah. and you can appreciate how they found that piece. When you have like a real context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So now that I got you all nostalgic yeah. for 1994. 1994. I have to say that there seems to me to be a certain nostalgia at the heart of what you do. Mm -hmm. It's a, a nostalgia for your youth, I suppose. Yeah. But it's also a nostalgia for a time and a place and a culture decidedly different than yours. Mm. So I guess I wonder if you could just talk about how nostalgia informs your craft. Well, interesting question, because do you know what nostalgia means in Greek? Tell me. It means the pain of looking back. So on a very deep subconscious level, my relation to music is about self-healing from the trauma of parents and stuff. Yeah, I think it's not just about that. There's something else. And I think it's the ability to take the thing that I love because ultimately hip hop is just an, it's just is an aesthetic 
right? It's taking stuff and mixing it around, moving it around, changing it, chopping it. And you can sample and do whatever the fuck you want. You know, Africa Bambata used to play crazily popper records. You know, when I used to DJ out in London, I used to play like hip hop and stop and then play Lady Madonna by the Beatles, you know, just turn the bass up a bit. It's a fucking banging record and everyone would go nuts. And I don't really give a fuck what any of you think because at that moment, it just feels the right thing to do. So I totally love the idea that you can develop a set that sort of careens from Lady Madonna to Public Enemy to Boogaloo Joe Jones to some spoken word thing to like a recording of a preacher's sermon in Alabama. Mm, Which I have. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. No, so (laughs) I have a record which we we will have to record, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that you sort of see that all as part of a holistic Mm. enterprise now your craft has evolved quite a bit since the story you were telling about you know yeah Yeah, one one would hope it was a long time ago (laughs) and i guess you've probably gotten more sophisticated and your record collection has grown Mm. and with all of that in mind i i wonder how at this stage in your art, how you architect a set. Like, would you be so kind as to describe the anatomy, if you will, of one of your sets? Well, I guess there are two types of sets, really. Any DJ has two types of sets. One set will be, I have a brief in mind, or, you know, I want to play a bunch of jazz breaks. So you'll go into your jazz section and pull out a load of stuff and then you're like, okay, this thing first and then I can play that thing second and da 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 and plan it out. You know, like building a construct beforehand. Now, I used to do a lot of that. And then after a while, just on a personal level, it didn't feel like art. It felt like planning, right? And I still do it, right? There's a couple of mixes that I'm like, okay, I want it to kind of feel like this and do this and go off in this direction. So I'll pull, I'll pull out the records and have them in piles around me. But the other type of set, which I really love, is that I don't really give a fuck. Let's just see what happens. The thing I still love about early hip-hop, that it has mistakes in it. Yeah. It has kind of slightly offbeat drums or like a weird glitchy kind of busted loop or like the sound quality of the MC is fucking terrible. Perfectly imperfect, wabi-sabi. Yeah, so... Like, you know, I, I mean, I have like lots of records. Every single person who, who, who were on these records on some level was trying to say something and every single one of them wanted to be famous or be known or infamous because of it. Yeah. You know, you don't make records not to be known. Yeah, I mean, it's validation, right? You know. So let's talk about both of those types of sets yeah. really quickly. Yeah. As per the first type of set, what are the words or feelings that you might have in mind if you're going to try to embark on a set that has some structure. Like if you're telling me that you'll sit down to architect a set that does X, Y, or Z or feels like A, B, C, what are the words that you use to fill in X, Y, and Z? What does Mm. A, B, or C mean? Yeah. This is where it gets a bit more difficult to communicate, I think, um, which is interesting because I'm going to try because that's 
why we're here. Yeah, I guess. yeah. We have it, an, well, and we're of course we're going to hear. Yeah. You play music. Yeah, yeah. We're in the we're in the unfortunate word section yeah, of the, our conversation. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was as the Buddhists say, the prison of words. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think um, Alan Watts. Yeah, through all, and through. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Good guy. Good guy. Right. Yeah. I like the no, 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 absolutely. My just as a, a side note, my favorite um, Alan Watts kind of quote is what he calls the embroidery of the brain. Whereas you know, uh, you know, an embroidery, you look, you look at it on the front, and it's like a beautiful stitch picture of a horse. Yeah. And you turn it around, and it's just this fucking mess. <laughs> and he's like, "That's you. That is." Yeah. I love that. We're all a shambles, and I think that kind of segues into what those structured sets are about i try to explore myself and then i try to show people what i'm trying to explore myself through that music so it's it's, again it's very introspective and quite a deep process there's a lot more going on than i realize and there's also a bit of where the fuck is this going like i like going out to a club drinking and dancing to house music for the night, you know what I mean? Because it's just fun. But I couldn't listen to an hour of just doom, 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 doom. I mean, listen to a bit, but after a while you're like, this is just going to keep doing this, isn't it? Yeah. Like, the thing, that, the thing that DJs, like, of my ilk, there's a part of this which is just like, I've got this record, fuck you, you don't have this. And I'm not going to... Is that a thing? Yeah, oh, dude, let's talk about that. That is a massive thing. So in the Bronx, when African Bambata and Jazzy J started, right, they would tape over what, you know, the artist name and the label. So you had no idea what these fucking things were. It's like when Robert Johnson used to play with his back to the crowd yeah. because he didn't want them to see what he was doing with his hands. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly the same thing. So I've definitely done this. I've turned up at a gig knowing that I have something and letting the other DJs kind of do their whole kind of like, you know, I've got the shit and I'm just sitting there kind of super mellow, not in a competitive way. However, maybe a little however, bit. However, just a little bit. I'm like, when I put that on, I win. What's weird about that is, and it is arrogance and there's a bit of masculinity in it and everything else, but Super fucking comfortable with it too. Yeah. Oh, it's really comfortable with it. It is part of the... It's definitely a part of the thing. Like, I'm going back home to Cornwall relatively soon and there's a, there's a guy who is insane, who sells records. <laughs> I mean, he is, he's, I mean, he is fucking insane. Uh-huh. In fact, I got a call when I was down in Cornwall from my friend Dave saying, we've just found this amazing record spot. Like, it's full of ridiculous records. And I was like, Cool. And I went, what's the guy like? And Dave just went, you know, you know what he's like. And, I was, and he was, he's super alpha, super aggressive. So you get there and you start showing that you know your shit. So he automatically goes into, do you have this? I bet you ain't got that. I got this. Have you got it? Like, like, but it's relentless. It, like it's exhausting. The whole point of the, of the exchange is that no one can really win because he's bound to have something that I'm like, fuck me, that's amazing. And so am I. What is the nature of this competition? I recall it from my baseball card collecting days when I was a tween, but I don't know that I've experienced it since. It's just the monkey brain, I think. I don't like, 
we spend all our time trying to work each other out and ourselves out. You know, we are but boats on the tide. So I, I, I think trying to critique oneself in this ridiculous infinite black universe we're on this rock chasing this star, like the whole thing feels preposterous. So I think the monkey brain just like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm good at this. You know what I mean? It's just this deep compensation thing rather than can I go, I haven't got a fucking clue what's going on. However, with this guy, I'm fully aware of how contradictory this is. It got so ridiculous with the, if you got this, if you got that, I kind of said, right, at some point I'm going to come to Cornwall with a box of records and me and you are going to go back to back in a club. This is... Because like it's and that's aggressive, right? That is definitely me, and that's me. Kind of, I'm not like that dude at all. But You're not. It, but I'm really surprised to hear this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this art. By the way, I know I'm going to win. Isn't that? <laughs> it's fucking madness, isn't it? It's not. There's no. There's no win. There's no win. I don't think it would be an overstatement for me to say I'm. I'm shocked, and dare I say, a little bit appalled by your behavior, Scott. I Good. I don't know this about you. No. I'm quite interested to learn that this is true of you. Now, I do know that this is endemic in this culture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but you're a middle-aged man of a certain level of comfort. Yeah. And still... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. turn on your competitive... Mm-hmm. Because you, like... Well, you got digging, right? And you're digging, you're digging, you're digging, you're digging, and like, you know, your hands are filthy and you've got like cuts on your nails and like you pull up a load of 45s and you go to the you go to the record shop and you just you're flipping through them all and you're like, oh that's no good. And then suddenly it's just like boom. You're like, what the fuck is this? Hang on a second. And then immediately, immediately you kind of go, Oh, I want to hear this loud. And I think it's two things. It is a genuine honour to play out, you drop something and watch everyone go nuts and, you know, everyone near their god self, they're just kind of letting go. Like, that is a very, very, very wonderful thing. Okay, so let's yeah. let the listeners know that yeah. it's not entirely selfish, that part no. of it is born out of no. the hard work of digging through yeah. dusty old records. Yeah. But really, it's about watching people go bananas because yeah. you worked yeah. at finding that yeah. record that yeah. would bring them mm-hmm. some catharsis and some escape yeah. from and, the doldrums of daily life. Yeah, and, and to ignore the selfish, competitive nature of that would be would be to ignore the human in all of us. So like the DJ battle, the MC battle part of the culture is that confrontation yes so you stumbled into this for a moment and if i could just bring you back there for another moment or two if Mm. you're game listen you can't judge a book by its cover right this is what we say yeah but in your practice you have to Mm -hmm. like you can't just go to every record shop and you can't listen to every record that you touch. And with that in mind, I wonder how you would describe your process of digging mm. and maybe even give an example of some gold that you managed mm. to mine. I, I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, I dig a lot. I mean, a week without going through some crates or whatever, 
I start to kind of feel like I need to go digging. You're out there every week. Yeah, yeah, somewhere. Like I have a list of stuff that I'm always on the lookout for. Invariably, it's fucking rare, impossible to find. And I, you know, I use Discogs and like. You know, my want list on Discogs is basically just fantasy because it's just shit that, unless I become a multi-millionaire, it's never going to happen. But you can sometimes dig and come across something, and you have that "oh fuck" moment. So if you if you dig a lot, if you do anything like your like your intuition and your instincts start to kind of you know, like, how can I fucking describe that? It's a thing, you know what I mean? It's the kind of, it's the the thing in your stomach, the gut, the feel. Like, London's a great example, right? I lived in London for, like, 20 years. So you'd go all over and someone would say, oh, I found this charity shop, which is just full of ridiculous shit, or there's a guy in North London who's just got a warehouse full of crazy shit, and I don't know what any of it is. And... um you can walk into a record shop and go, oh, there's nothing in here. And you just, and you go through. You just know. You just like, no, 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 this is all, I mean, it's like, oh, there's stuff, but like, you know, not stuff that I'm like, oh, fuck, what's, this is interesting, or what the fuck is that? But you feel it. Yeah, you do. And like, a lot of people say, like, yeah, that is a thing. And sometimes you walk, walk into a record shop and you're like, oh, fuck. There are certain record shops how they're built, the records on the wall. You can walk into some record shops and you're like, this person is not fucking around. Yes. This person is curating the shit out of this. Plus, they always have a stack under the desk. Okay. Where is it? Do they know you well enough to kind of go, I've got some shit under the desk? So you really got to use your third eye... Well, I do. I mean, like, I know other people say the same thing, but everyone's different. But, you know, so digging goes into kind of three categories. Firstly, you've got, like, record traders, buyers, friends of mine who have crates of stuff and, like, everything they have is ridiculous. So that's not digging. That's just... I have a friend, Julian, who I send some money to maybe, like, once every three months. I'll be like, I'm looking for some soul, some psychedelic rock, some reggae, whatever. He's like, Cool. You got Julian on retainer. He'll deliver yeah, yeah, exactly. every <laughs> few months. Yeah, that's it. Fuck, I All hadn't right. thought of that. Right. Thank you, Julian. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, yeah. And then you have record fairs, which are, uh, which are a larger macro version of the Julian, right? And you have lots of those. So there's a place in Utrecht in the Netherlands uh, that um, is the world's biggest record fair. That is, without question, the most confusing emotionally overbearing exhausting experience yeah imaginable and is it all a bunch of like men men yeah. like sort of chest thumping yeah. talking smack like it that's yeah. a few days of that yeah and then you have the go out record digging find some stuff local shops yeah go to the yeah other i mean we're in berlin right berlin is it's bananas for records it's fucking amazing like i could spend all day going to record shops and hey just for the hell of it, hot tips, two or three record shops that our listeners in yeah, Berlin should right. hit up. And we'll link to them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Lefter Records, run by a Turkish guy. He has a whole section for the Turkish records. Number two, um, Space Hall, which yeah. is kind of a known one. but Local. Local, but that has a lot of good records, a lot of good jazz. Um, Dodo Beach, 
uh, which is in Schoenberg. So Scott, here we are sitting in the middle of a pile of three or 4,000 records, as you said. Like, I feel it. You yeah. know, there's a real history here. Yeah. You're a musicologist of sorts. Like, how do you see your role as an historian, as, as a musicologist? Mm. Yeah, so I guess finding objects of fascination or discrete things that got made that, you know, you look at it and go, why the fuck does that exist? <laughs> right. So like like so I have I have a record here, right? You haven't seen this cover, right? We should record this. We have to caveat this with it. It's like it's not it's not cool. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is a record called The Child Seducers. It's it's narrated by John Carradine and it says who tells it like it is, right? So this record is just McCarthy era fear-mongering madness, uh-huh. right? Now, if 10 people own this record on the planet, I will be surprised. Yeah. Where do you find that? I don't know. I can't remember. But I do remember digging in a spoken word section. And, uh, you know, as you, as you go for the records and just seeing the words at the top in red letters, the child seducers, and kind of going... What the fuck is that? Right. Right. When was that made? What label is that on? And why? What, why that? What are you... Tr- like, but this was effectively government propaganda. It's a soft hand of the McCarthy era and all that stuff coming out through a record, right? Plus, if you're making a mix and it suddenly it stops and it just goes, beware the child seducer, and it goes all dark, you can take the mix off in a completely different direction Spoken word records enable you to kind of pivot the mood or the feel. Okay. You know, so I have another one here, right? So so that's one, the child seducers. Great records if you're chatting up a lady. Come around to mine. <laughs> Come look at my child seducing <laughs> oh, records. Lord. Yeah. All right, what's the next one? And then you have Kreskin's basic principles of ESP. <laughs> the so, great Kreskin. Yeah, you know Kreskin. The right? almighty Kreskin. It's a great cover. It's a brilliant cover. So this is just... Kreskin talking about how it is possible to read each other's minds, which is clearly nonsense. But there's about an hour's worth of audio. It's an, it's an oddity. It's a brilliant thing to share. And and you sit and you listen to Kreskin. Yeah. And you listen to Carradine. Yeah. In part because of your sheer curiosity yeah. and your... Like how stupid and ridiculous is this thing going to get? And because you're hoping to repurpose it mm, to create absolutely. an experience yep. for a listener. Yeah. Now, about that, yeah. and I hate to pivot off of Carradine or the mighty Kreskin. Well, if, if you lose you know, listeners because of it, so be it. <laughs> like, it seems to me that at the core of it, what you're seeking to do is to curate an experience for whatever strangers might stumble into your world. Mm. And it begs what I'm afraid is a really simple question, but I desperately want to know the answer. Like, what kind of experiences are you trying to create mm. for your listeners? Like, I don't make, I don't really make uh, mixes to dance to. <laughs> you know, I, you know, well, you know, reasonable I, people don't dance to the yeah, amazing Kreskin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, the music I like 
um, majority of it. Like, you know, you don't go to a club and hear ultra magnetic MCs. You know what I mean? I mean, you fucking should. Right. Right. Um, anyone, if anyone hasn't heard Critical Beatdown by Ultra Magnetic MCs, by the way, go and listen to it. 1988 album. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it's amazing. So, what kind of experience are you trying so, to curate? The music I like is the stuff where it starts off doing one thing and then it just suddenly does another thing. And you're like, oh, fuck me, this is amazing. What the mm-hmm. fuck is this? So, I like to you know, build something up and then just drop and drop it like an African funk record and it just go off for like the next 20 minutes. So I like peaks and troughs. You do? Yeah, I do, right? I'm a peaks and troughs guy. But it's even dirtier than that. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Like you lure listeners in. I've been listening to your mixes for so long as I've known you, a couple of years. Yeah. But in thinking about what we were going to do in this recording here, I've been taking a deep dive into the right. world of Sad Eagle. Yeah, yeah. And far be it from me to seek to analyze your craft, mm. but, <laughs> but I, I will have. say yeah. that you seem to, as I understand it, rather purposefully endeavor to lure the listener into a meditative, a hypnotic mm state Mm. and once you get them there the floor falls out yeah that's kind of your move yeah 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 it is it is and i think it's it's partly belligerent because i could easily put a mix together of just hip-hop and it'd be blended and cut up and it'd take me a while but i could do that but everyone's doing that so because of my background, because I'm from Cornwall, and because I have to have a different view on this art and this pastiche of collecting and doing it, I think it's important that I do my own thing. And also, just because I'm a bit, I, you know, I have a slightly mischievous character. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, so I like playing with the format. Yeah. I have to say, I like the way you you play with it. Thanks, I've been man. I've been excited to have you on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Here. I, mean, I yeah. really dig what you do, man. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man. That's much appreciated. And I think we've made our listeners wait long enough. Mm-hmm. If your game, yeah, at this point, yeah, I think it'd be an opportune time to dive into some of the technical dimensions of your practice, mm-hmm. and in so doing, you can share with us. A little bit about your process, right. dare I say, yep. and how you feel okay. about how you do it, okay? Yeah, I mean, we have to caveat this is that I'm just going to make some shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, yeah. That's, I'm okay with that. I'm just, all I'm saying is, <laughs> we might have built this up, but the next bit might be a bit shit. <laughs> okay. I doubt it. I doubt it. We'll see. We'll, let's, see. we'll see. We can only but try. We will give it a try. All right, let's set this whole thing up. Let's do it. All right, cool. Righty. All right, you ready, buddy? Yeah, I'm good. All right, after a short little interlude there, my man's all set up at his turntables. His joint has been sparked. His joint has been put down. He's got his microphone set up. He's got 
two turntables and a microphone is yeah. what he's got. Jesus, I'm where I'm, it's I'm at. A man, hip hop band. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. Give me the crash course. Because we mentioned Alan Watts earlier, during the interlude, I found my Alan Watts record, which is a spoken word record. Spoken word records can position the general vibe of what you're trying to do. So I will stop talking. And I'll just start. So I start off with this, and then at some point, I will stop the uh, words and drop a very famous sample that you will all love. Okay, thank you. Meditation has no purpose, no objective, except to be entirely here and now. It isn't something you do to improve yourself, to get ahead in the world, or to prepare yourself for life. For the division of time into past, present, and future is a trick of words and numbers. All memories and expectations and this exist place, now. I queue up the other record. And now only. Which you can't hear. Because now is what there is and all that there is. We could say that the past flows back from now, like the wake from the prow of a ship. And then just like the wake vanishes. As the wake doesn't drive the ship, the past does not propel or move. Propel or propel or propel or propel. Like that. Stay there. I dig the drop. Mm hmm. But we can't stop. No. What's the next natural feeling place? for this to go for you. It's just a... So you want to find a music that just kind of has that kind of what I call like hip sway music. So I just try and think of a, a record that aesthetically would kind of suit this or either continue it or take it to you know, a slightly faster place, darker place, a lighter place. And it's running out of um, record, so I'm going to just have to do that very quickly. by magic I find one
So yeah, same kind of vibe, but goes off in a slightly different direction. All right. You see what I mean? It makes sense, right? It just makes sense. Donny Hathaway? Who we got? So this record is a Finnish record called Mood and Grooves, and it's by the Yapa Universal Orchestra. Um, it is a library record, I think, from Helsinki. I mean, this is kind of the, what I would call the kind of the softest of the tunes. There's some absolute bangers on here, but yeah. You want to hear another one? Absolutely. Can you pick a record that will allow you to showcase some techniques that you use? Sure. Um, yeah, okay. The listeners should know I'm shaking my ass right now. He is. He's shaking his anus. So I'm just going to pivot. Um, I probably wouldn't do this on a mix, but to show how you can mix two records together and create a new record is obviously something that DJs do. So I'm going to try and do that live without any real um, practice. So caveat, could be shit. But let's try it. This is uh, an instrumental record by the god Jay Diller, and I have a funk dubious old school West Coast acapella. I'm going to try and play the rap from one record over this record. Try. As sure as the sun rises in the east, it also sets in the west. My soul was a weapon, my mind keeps stepping in the depths of hell Yet I fell from the lesson, my soul leaves the body The situation's naughty, original, invincible, there's one stool and tardy A class for the better, cause I be writing letters And setting shit straight, one laughing, one shepherd My face turns purple, purple, purple 
That could have gone better, but you get the idea. I mean, I hadn't really ever practiced that, so that was a live thing, and you can you can hear the mistakes. You can hear it kind of going slightly off time. You can hear me slightly speeding up the record and slowing it down because what I should have done is pick something which I definitely knew would work, uh, but I decided I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, no, it's cool though, man. It nearly worked, but that, you know, like, you know, one man's mistake is another man's gold kind of thing, you know, so... It's gold to me. It's all gold to me. Yeah, you're, you're yeah the, but they see the point. Like, there's two different aesthetics at different speeds, so you have to manipulate them both. You know, I was, you know, kind of lazily scratching the acapella over the top. But the idea is, is that you know, you can, you can do that. You can beat mix where you have two records and play two beats going over at the same time and cut between the two and you know do all those things. But the the physical act of like digging for records putting them on, playing them, and then manipulating them, or just, you know, experimenting them, and sometimes things work and sometimes they doesn't. And I also think, if you, like, if I was to play out, I would try to do that in a live environment. I'm super comfortable with, like, properly fucking up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you another chance to totally fuck up, Scotty. Are you ready for it? Sure. I would like you, if you would be so bold, mm -hmm. to put on two records that are totally disparate in tone, content, mm. nature, and intent. Yeah. And I want you to find something that lets those two records speak together in a musical way. Mm. And before you drop a needle, tell us what those records are. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's easy because I don't know. So I'm just going to go into my records now and see if I can find something. So I was going to plan all this, but then I thought it's a lot it's a lot more rewarding if something goes really, really right rather than planning it. <laughs> I'm with you, man. You know what I mean? You don't have to plan for me. It's, yeah, it's yeah, the For a Living podcast. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? I plan at work. I don't want to plan on my, my lezier time. But yeah, let me go. I'll go and find some stuff. All right, cool. Watch out for the chords, baby. All right. The listeners will note that our man of the hour has returned to the turntables with <laughs> two discs, one on each turntable. True. Yeah, so... Because we mentioned kind of jokingly like, oh, the priest from Alabama. Right, right. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got something like that. <laughs> and then I was like, well, fuck, we'll prove it, Scott. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's not just say it. <laughs> Fucking play it. So I have to, so this, this is, uh, yeah, so there's two records. This, the first record is by a guy called Arthur Blessit, and it's called The Jesus Witness. And I have a fucking incredible story about this record. So uh, I bought this record in Notting Hill for a pound. <laughs> and what it is, it's this guy, Arthur, bless it, just talking about religion and God, but he's clearly a child of the 60s, shall we say. So I found this record, and it's just been a staple spoken word record. And then years later, I was in San Francisco digging, 
and I was looking for more records like this. And I said to the guy, I think it was Groove Merchant, a guy called Chris. And I said, do you have any, any other... The record label is like Word. I said, do you have anything on Word? Any weird Christian records? And the guy was like, um, no, no, no. And I was like, well, because I have this record by this guy, Arthur Blessett. And Chris goes, he lives uh, one block from here. No kidding. This is true. So I was like, the fuck? And he's like, yeah, no, like Arthur Blissett, he lives, it's not just off Haight and Ashbury. So I'm like, and he's like, I'll show you where he lives. So I went up to his house and uh, knocked on the door. It's a true story. And uh, I said, um, yeah, does Arthur Blissett live here? And this woman was like, yeah, he's my husband. I was like, okay, I have one of his records and I just wanted to meet him. And she said, he's not here. And I was like, oh, damn, where is he? And this is exactly what she said. She said, he's currently walking across America with a wooden cross. <laughs> this is 100% true. So the other reason you, we, like, the other reason you do this, there's just, there's, there's, there's an energy, there's an eccentricity to it. So anyway, this is, so I'm going to play <laughs> a bit of this. I mean, this, like, I have to caveat this. I mean, it's amazing, but it's fucking nuts. And then with a... I think one of my favourite ever, like, soul break, kind of rare funk, soul, bluesy, jazz thing, which I love. I'm not going to tell you what it's called. Okay. So here we go. You see, when the Lord called me to preach, I said, God, I don't want to be a preacher. Now, isn't that the way most of you feel about being a preacher? You know, you say, oh, I don't want to be some miserable face, sour, big old, puffy cheek, persimmon-looking, big pot-bellied, you know, punchy bag of bones you know I said Lord I want to live and I read the words of Jesus where he said but I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly Jesus came to give us an abundant life a life filled with joy and happiness filled with commitment yes but a life filled with himself Jesus said as my father sent me even so send I you. I you. I you. I you. I you. Keep it playing for a bit because it's mental. You get the idea. I mean, they're two records that shouldn't go together. And that's why I win all the battles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I dig 
So I can do stuff like that. It's not particularly tech. I could make it more technically proficient, but my energy is finding those things and putting these things together. There's no reason why that should have sounded <laughs> as good as that, considering I've never done it before. Um, but that's testament to both of those records, right? They're kind of, one is uniquely fucking stupid and odd, and the other one's just, I mean, that tune, when I play that out, Make it rain a little bit, huh? Bring the pain and make it rain. Yeah. You got to. You've, you've got to try and be the best at this. And I know I'm nowhere near it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm a full-time hobbyist. I'm not a shadow or a cut chemist or an Edan or any of those dudes. They're my heroes. But this is my interpretation of that. And, you know... I don't really give a fuck what anyone thinks. I'm just going to keep doing it. Well, I love the way you work it, and I love the way you twerk it. And I have a twerking-related question for you, Scott. Sure. So I'm watching you spin these records, and your head bobs and weaves, your torso rocks back and forth. Kind of reminds me of, like, the old Hasidic Jews davening, you know? (laughs) You're you're evidently moved by the music, no doubt about it. But I think it's more than just that. There seems to be a spirituality in what you do. Can you discuss the spirituality of your practice? Mm. I can try. I mean, I like take a step back and kind of go, I think over the last 10 years, I realized that I kind of didn't have a philosophy of how I saw the world. I was just living it. And I suddenly realized, I was like, hang on a minute. I, I have to kind of make, I have to kind of make my own sense of all this. Uh, so as a kind of confused individual, I'm kind of partly down with what I would call Jungian stuff. And also that whole Alan Watts, Sly Man, it, like lazy enlightenment. Like how do you get enlightened by just being enlightened? So when I play that tune that I belligerently will not name yeah so no offense listener but fuck you um (laughs) that is guaranteed to hit the whole of me the good the bad the known the unknown like african bombatus and used to say when he when he when, when he would dj and play the breaks he would say you know i play records so you can get close to your god self and i think for me that records just enable me to connect to my truth and the best thing in the world is hearing a song that's just made like that loud in a club i'm dancing yeah like i don't give a like you know i'm a dj as well but also like if i'm out and someone's playing the shit i'm going to be right in the middle of that totally just hours just loving it, not a care in the fucking world. All the cares in my world are just are being sorted in real time in my head. So it's a real meditative state. And I think I try and try and bring some of that to the mixes that I make. So they have a slight mystic kind of sometimes it's you know, I purposely will play something a bit awkward or a bit brash. Oh yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah, I will. Like really off putting stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because don't you find some of the thoughts that you have off-putting? I feel very comfortable on that level of confusion. So I, I like to bring that to people. 
it's hard to translate, but I think that's what I'm doing. I mean, since Alan Watts seems to keep coming up between us tonight in this conversation, I should tell you that in one of my more challenging hours, and in some ways, maybe one of the darkest hours in Mm. my adult life, some two decades ago, uh, my dear friend and friend of this podcast, Scott Robin, a.k.a. Howard Maple, he gifted me this book by Alan Watts, Mm. a used dog-eared version of The Wisdom of Insecurity. Mm. Oh, right, amazing, yeah, amazing book. And it seems to me that part of your project is to shake the listener free from their expectation Mm. that a song or a set should have a certain structure. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And you've used the word belligerent twice. Yeah. And you've talked a bit about sort of the bravado of it all, but you didn't use that word. I Mm. will. It's probably not so far from the right word. Yeah. And I think if I'm reading you right, you take a certain pride in shaking the heels mm. of your listener mm. a little bit, yeah. rearranging their prejudices for them. Mm. Is that part of the move? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I've been insanely blessed, not only just music, but also career as well, right? You know, I kind of... I can talk about my career because it's, it's not relevant but like you've done very well i've done pretty i've yeah. done some good shit i yeah, worked yeah. at google and did some startup things and you're more than just good looks and a fat record collection i'm kind of the I'm kind of a big deal <laughs> 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 what a fucking asshole but no i think um the the, the belligerence is kind of like i am going to do my own fucking thing some of it will just ultimately be completely off kilter. I mean, you know. A lot of it is. Yeah. Like you go to some really dark places. Like mm. it seems to me, and tell me if this is inaccurate. I don't know if I want this to be true or false, <laughs> but it seems right. to me that you are consciously and purposefully pushing into people's zones of discomfort Mm -hmm. and then finding a creative way to build an off-ramp for them to then just dance yeah you're popping into their gender issues playing it's a man's world right yeah 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 by a notorious not just misogynist but like yeah a convicted very Fun. violent man. Yeah, absolutely. James Brown. Yeah, also pound for pound. The hardest worker man in the yeah, show business and the funkiest man alive. But, like, but hold on real yeah. quick. You, you're playing It's a Man's World and you you got the preacher mm. and then you got these real fat back grooves making us all dance. Mm. And the next thing you know, you're playing like some spaghetti Western mm. weirdness. Mm. And it seems to be all in an effort to shake the pavement slabs beneath people's feet. Mm. How much is that on your mind as you're pursuing 
a mix. That's who I am. Yeah, that's who you are, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you don't even have to think about it. No, okay. no, that is basically what I am. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it likes, yeah, like, you know, it's a very thin line between Zen and ego, right? And, I, you know, they kind of, they, they should shake hands now and again, and you should get confused by it, and you should, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. But we were talking about, you know, James Brown, and his darkness was pitiful. His lightness was incredible. Humans are constantly judging whether something's good or bad, and then the outcome is either good or bad. That's what we do, right? Right. And that's just who we are. This is kind of the reduction of the infiniteness of all of this, and we're like, oh, that's good. That that's good. That that's happened, and that's bad. That's happened. Stuff is born out of destruction and darkness, and light comes from it. It's a horrible thing to talk about, but that is the ultimate truth of all this. Not condoning it, I'm just saying that's my take on it. So I t- I like to. Yeah, pick things and do things which somehow reflects that struggle between the creative process and also just the pitiful mess of my subconscious you know the kind <laughs> of dark yeah. soup I call it the steps I think I have like you know steps that go down in, and they're oily and they're black you never, you never really want to walk down them but yeah. we all have our own cellar and I kind of don't mind going down there now and again as long as I know that I can get back up, you know. Does the music and the way you interface with your records give you the safety rope you need to traverse into some of the darker recesses of your psyche and know that you can come back out of it still dancing? Uh, I mean, we were talking about Alan Watts earlier. I was just like, it's, it's, it's coming to my head and it kind of feels pertinent, but... When we talk about music and subconscious, the thing that I I find most fascinating is the synchronicity of the whole thing, right? So we were talking earlier about the, the, the Arthur Blessed moment, right? He's like, oh, fuck, yeah, he lives around the corner. If you dig records, you're like, of course this is happening. Yeah. Right? So I think the process of putting something onto, onto wax and stuff is that it, cap- it captures something else. Because there is something, there is, a, there is another worldliness to all this because... We shouldn't be accepting buying new hoovers and cars as what this is all about. That's um, that's drivel, you know. It's a game. How close can you get to being comfortable with how awful you are? Because yeah. we are all awful. Yeah. You know, and cool too, you know. Some of us are cooler than others, and you're a pretty cool motherfucker. Hey, we've covered a lot of ground here. Sure, 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 yeah. sure, 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 I mean, sure, sure, sure. for sure. But I can't help but wonder, is there anything that you would like to discuss here that we didn't manage to touch on? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's broadly. The elephant in the room in a lot of this stuff is Spotify and the YouTubes. The YouTubes, you know, yeah. like a plural. <laughs> um, the, the ability to have abundance at your fingertips is, I think, fucking awful. It just turns us into spoiled, angry kids. It is a position I'm like, fuck Spotify. It's not particularly logical, but I think, for me, the scarcity of records and the... I mean, the economics of records is fucking fascinating, right? So you have records that are rare, that are worth... You know, that record I played is from a compilation, the one that I will not name, because the original was like worth fucking thousands 
but it's on my want list. I'm never going to get it. I want to list something. I should be able to listen to whatever I want. Or I'm of the opinion of like, no, the stuff that I want, I have to go and fucking find it or save money or work hard or kill a relative, you know. (laughs) But so I think that the scarcity of this stuff and also if anyone's out there kind of going, should I start collecting records? Yes. Yeah. Do it. Fucking do it. Everyone do it. Why? Make make the pitch. Because the the, the the artwork, the feeling, the sound, you know, you can hold them, you can read them. You know, like MP3s are just these graphical representations of code. If you enjoy music and you enjoy the experience of listening to music, then the sound of a record on a good sound system is infinitely more spiritual than streaming something on Spotify. I mean, I think the other thing is is that now with technology, anyone can fucking DJ. I mean, it's a piece of piss. You can get tracked to a Serato and like you can you can set it up in an hour and like within a week you can be doing some pretty interesting stuff. So that makes me retreat more into the scarcity and the and the analog and the relationship with the people and the artists and it's just I think it's more human. Yeah. Well, you know I got a little bit of a record collection. Yeah, yeah. Nothing quite like what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> so you don't have to sell me on the idea. No. But I'll bet that there are, you know, a handful of people who are listening to this who are like on the fence maybe. Yeah. Should they dust off the record? Should they go Fuck get a yeah. fresh new needle? And my man, Sad Eagle, says, Fuck yeah. Get involved. I mean, what's the argument against it? There you go. There isn't one. And that should be enough, my friend. Sure. You've persuaded some dear listeners of this podcast dear, to dear get listeners. back in touch with their analog yeah. selves and to get the music in their paws. Yeah. And in their guts. But I can't let you go mm. until or unless you do me two favors. And I just got an idea. Uh, Three favors. Fuck. So as we discussed, I'm going to ask you to drop a cultural artifact that's somehow reminiscent of your work. Mm. I'm going to ask you to recommend the guest. But I'd like you to deliver both of those goods to me with a funky backbeat in the background. Would you be so kind? Sure. Yeah, give me a minute. But I've just seen something and I'm like, oh, yeah, that that would be cool. I think we might be going African. All right, let's do it. All right, my man. All right. So, as you know, I like to conclude these conversations with asking my guests for two things. First, I want to ask you for a cultural artifact that informs or somehow embodies your practice. This could be anything. It could be a record. That would be natural. A poem, a song, a film, a book, a mural, a joke. I don't care. What does this thing say about how you do what you do? So there is a there is a documentary called Scratch. The digging one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 
Tell us about Scratch briefly. So that is so that came out I think in maybe like the early noughties, like maybe two thousand and three, four, something like I that. I bet you're right. Something like that. And actually at the time I'd kind of I hadn't stopped digging, but I just for a while I just kind of lost. You know, it happens, right? You just like I, I lost my mojo. I couldn't really be bothered. And then this documentary came out. So this documentary is basically the history of, you know, records and the scratch in in hip hop culture. And um, I mean, it's I, I think the whole the whole of the documentary now is on YouTube, right? So because it's been so fucking long, but it's an incredible document of work which personifies it perfectly yeah it, it's just the energy you come out of that and you're like I want a fucking DJ I want to dig you have those real moments where you see the the cache of records that DJ Shadow had underneath that record shop where he, where, where he got all the records in the basement with the old man yeah I mean that, yeah. that bit was so intimate but also just like look how many fucking records are there yeah. Like, you know, you know, the history of the scratch where, you know, kind of the jigga 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 rocket and Yeah, Herbie Hancock yeah, all yeah. up in the mix. Yeah, that great recommendation. Uh, a perfect cultural artifact yeah. for our conversation. Yeah. I'll link to it for our listeners in yeah. the show notes, the documentary scratch. And with that said, would you be so kind as to recommend a guest that I should oh, pursue wow. for this podcast? This could be someone you know, or maybe more broadly, just like a profession that you'd be interested to learn more about. Hmm, that's a really good question. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. That's what I did. Finally got a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like right at the end. It's a, I tell you what's new. I, like, I tell you what would be interesting. Like a police detective, a guy who has to go out and see some bad. Like, how do you cope with all that? Like yeah. the worst bits of all of us. Yeah. Like a good detective, though. You know, the kind of one that's moody, smokes. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Williams, Sad Eagle. It has been a bona fide pleasure to have you on the Four Living Podcast. I dig your style. I dig you. Thank you for sharing some of your practice with us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, friends and loved ones. That was my conversation with Scott Williams, a.k.a. Sad Eagle. I've linked to all his music in the show notes. And remember that on your podcast feed, we have an hour-long set that Scott created exclusively for the For Living Podcast. Remember, you can always support this podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash for a living. You can share it with your friends. That's a great way to show support. And of course, you could join me in two weeks from today for my conversation with the London-based dancer and choreographer, Alina Akhmatova. I actually just finished that conversation off the other day, and I found myself deeply emotional. She's really a beautiful person. And you're a beautiful person, too. So until we meet again in two weeks' time, please take care. Let yourself breathe. Let yourself celebrate life just a bit. I mean, come on now. Life is short. Get your click-clack back. Click, 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 click
I don't look like a b-boy you know what I mean you, mean you I don't look, say yeah I look like Alan from the hangover you know what I mean <laughs> which which is true thank you for never saying it but it's true <laughs> 